All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we're back. This is the Mars Magazine Podcast. This is Adario Strange. And this week we have a special episode along with a special guest. Here with me this episode we have John Threat. He's a hacker and a director. He's directed a number of uh, commercials, uh, music videos, and I know he's working on a few films, but you may know him in, I would say, maybe his previous incarnation as a, a well, let's just say a, a very famous hacker. And he was one of the first or only hackers that I know of that was on the cover of Wired magazine back in the 90s. But since then, he has transformed himself and reinvented himself into a uh, hacker of media. And he he's now hacking our media. He, he has infiltrated the Mars Magazine podcast. How you doing? What up? You, you go back and forth between New York and L.A. Right now you're in Brooklyn, right? That's right. And we're going to talk about like two trailers that came out this week, two science fiction trailers. And then later we're going to get into a topic that we covered last episode, which is security, data security, uh, hacking, uh, how you kind of, I guess, live your digital life in the new landscape of WikiLeaks and just an, an unending torrent of data leaks. Like, how, how do you live? How do you live, I guess, like, um, what is it, like when they say when you drive defensively, defensive driving, how do you conduct your digital life uh, dis- defensively? So, but first, we want to get into a trailer that came out for Luc Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Home sweet home. Because the sky is blue, it makes me cry. We get on just great. You flirt, I smile. Yeah, we're a team. Luc Besson's Valerian, it stars Cara Delevingne, Ethan Hawke, John Goodman, Clive Owen, the uh, incomparable Rutger Hauer, the, the man from Blade Runner, the, you know, the poetic robot uh, from Blade Runner, and Rihanna. We actually talked about Rihanna on the pod a few months back when she did kind of like a science fiction short music video for the latest Star Trek franchise film that came out this year. And now she's actually starring in a science fiction film. So you saw the trailer, uh, Mr. Threat. What'd you think? That trailer is incredible. <laughs> it is everything the dreams are made of when it comes to science fiction. And let's face it, Luc Besson is one of the gold standards of science fiction with his entree of um, the fifth element, which is just such an incredible daring landscape of outer space and adventure and what our future might look like. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. You bring that up because that's the first thing I thought of when I saw the trailer it was released earlier this week. The first thing I thought was that this looks a lot like, at least the opening scene, looked a lot like the fifth element if you kind of, if there was like a knob, you know, upon which you could turn up the special effects and maybe just the overall quality, you know, somehow, like time travel knob or something. If you just turned it up maybe three to four notches, it looked pretty much just like the fifth element. I mean, 
on some level, I'm wondering, is that kind of like a bad thing? I mean, do you think he's being maybe a little redundant with the look? No, not at all. Everybody's been hungry for that look. In fact, think about all the misfires in science fiction in the last decade or more since The Fifth Element came out and all the bold choices it made, including like Chris Tucker as this amazing songstress who is like totally like pansexual, uh, uh, which is very current. Nowadays, sort of the the melding of way what any particular sexuality is. That was such a bold character. And you got Chris Tucker, a guy who was in gangster films right. like Fridays, to play this role and play it very well. Um, I think that the ele- the elements in it um, that are similar, we've been hungry for and waiting for. And I'm going to eat it up when it arrives. It seems like the a same or similar role is being played by Rihanna. Uh, in the trailer, we see her kind of transform from one look and outfit to another. And it makes me almost wonder, like, is is she what she appears? Like, is uh, is he going to do that kind of gender thing, like, you know, that he did before? So maybe she's not what she appears in the trailer, appears to be in the trailer. It, yeah, I mean, the, there were, like, robotics shown, you know, it just, I, I don't know. It, it reminded me of, what's the uh, the Wachowskis film that came out a few years back? Jupiter Ascending. Which I was not um, a fan of. I have to be honest, it, it really, and I, I know and trust Luc Besson's work. He's got a long track record, but I did get some kind of Jupiter ascending vibes because uh, I just it was dazzling. It, it looked beautiful, but I'm not sure I, I got what exactly was going on that was of any importance. I get I get what you're saying, but allow me to give you a different picture. One thing that was great about the Thousand Planets tra- trailer, unlike Jupiter ascending, is that they are clearly traveling between what I think is distinct worlds. Um, you definitely have a city that looks like the city that Bruce Willis traveled through, but then there were like desert environments, um, aliens, there were like asteroids that were now complete cities. Um, I thought it was amazing texture and it looks sort of like a rambling sort of like high science fiction, super future um, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark where the two protagonists are running through all these different environments on a goal. Now, it's true. I don't necessarily know what the goal is, but man, I can't wait to follow them and find out. Yeah, and apparently this is based on a comic book of the same name, uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. I have not seen it. Um, I, look, I, you you seem to think they're going in the right direction. I, you know, I, I'm willing to hold out hope that there's something there. Again, Luc Besson is... Pretty, I mean, you know, it's hard to kind of deny his track record. So I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt. But uh, I don't know. It kind of it kind of looks like the sequel to The Fifth Element, which, again, I did not dislike The Fifth Element. But I felt like, um, I don't know, you know what it reminded me of? And maybe you'll disagree with me. This, it kind of reminded me of um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, just in that it kind of took a lot of firepower, a lot of kind of um, special effects and concept firepower threw it at the screen, but handled it in a kind of whimsical way, which I got to be honest, I'm not a fan of that. I like my sci-fi dark and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Doug Douglas Adams uh, fan. Well, I can say, first of all, Fifth Element is a film that is perfect from frame one to frame end. I would also say that you say you don't like sci-fi with humor, but what about, uh, the Paul Verhoeven films like Starship Trooper and um, 
uh, the Arnold Schwar- the other Arnold Schwarzenegger one with the um where he goes to Mars. Oh, Total Recall. <laughs> yeah, that is that is brimming with comedy, and so is RoboCop, and so is um I'm Starship Troopers, and the comedy allows you a bit of levity to get back to the serious notes, like the the dark notes somehow need more when you have some levity, like to break it up. And I would even argue that Minority Report has a bit of a comedy, a couple of comedy moments just to break it up in between the seriousness of the subject matter. I think it depends on who handles it. Um, Some people are, you know, obviously different directors cannot handle comedy, which is super hard to do. Um, But Luc Besson, I felt, handled it masterfully in The Fifth Element, which was transposed with all these different things. It had a huge metaphysical component um, tied into ancient Egypt um, with all these great actors, uh, Gary Oldman and Ian Holmes. There is nothing in that movie that I don't like. And so so much of it was incredibly original and not seen before true true and there were lots of twists and turns and uh holding the the fifth element inside somebody's stomach like it was just incredible what was going on and i think that like and it was all sorts of like little things like ads that were commentary in our society like even chris tucker's character here he was this like weird like TMZ. I, I think he was supposed to be like Prince as TMZ reporter, maybe. Is that? <laughs> yeah, he was half celebrity himself. Like he was like a Joan Rivers, right. except as like like an E reporter, but super duper globally. I mean, internet, you know, uh, interplanetary famous. No, no, no. You make some great points. Okay. You, you know, suddenly just hearing that description. Now I want to go back and watch the fifth element again. So, okay. Mission accomplished there. Um, so, and, and by the way, I got that wrong about the comic that it's based on. Uh, it's actually based on a comic by the name of Valerian and Lauraline or Lauraline. I'm not sure which way it's uh, pronounced. And it's a French comic uh, series that ran from, uh, wow, 1967 to 2010. So this must, I, this, I'm, wow. yeah, I'm guessing this is, it's a French comic. So I'm guessing this is like a really well known, well established property that maybe Luc Besson had his eye on for a long time. Um, so that's coming out in 2017 in July and we'll keep an eye out for it. Uh, next, we also had a chance to see a new trailer, uh, for the film Life. The mission's primary goal has been achieved. We're looking at a large single cell, biological. I'd hate to jump the gun, but I think it's time. We're looking at the first proof of life beyond Earth. You're finally a daddy. It's going to be a big custody battle over this one. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. And so in the description for the film, it describes the film thusly. Life tells the story of the six-member crew of the International Space Station that is on the cutting edge of one of the most important discoveries in human history, the first evidence of extraterrestrial life on Mars. As the crew begins to conduct research, their methods end up having unintended consequences and the life form proves more intelligent than anyone ever expected. And that's uh, that's life. That's the description for life. And basically, they found life on Mars and hijinks ensue. Again, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Ryan Reynolds, uh, Hiroyuki Sanada, who is, I would say, one of the best known Japanese actors born and raised in Japan, but now getting a lot of work uh, in Hollywood. 
And uh, that comes out next year. What would you think? Well, this trailer, I have to say, for me personally, was kind of kind of a snooze fest for me. It looks very um, derivative of Aliens. Um, When you say that, like the life proof from the description, life proves to be more intelligent. Like, what is it doing? Like, is it writing Tolstoy or something like that? Like, (laughs) like usually these things just possess somebody and then they like, oh, I know I tap into his brain and know how to fly the ship. Like, that's not really (laughs) that intelligent. Like, I feel like I feel like um, it definitely I don't see any elements even in a trailer. It just seems like a bunch of like. Um, really famous actors who we do like sort of sitting around a very generic looking uh, moon, like the set from moon, which Mm. was amazing from Duncan Jones. Right. Yeah. Love that film. Yeah. It just looks like they're sitting around a really well-designed, probably the art directors, a genius made this really great set and they're just sitting around it and get killed one by one. (laughs) But it's Jake Gyllenhaal, master of suspense, master of nervous intensity. No, not enough. Everybody, listen, a lot of things on paper seem great. And then it's really hard work to make a film. And sometimes at the end of it, you're just like, yo, I didn't, we didn't get it. Mm. It's hard to see it. But honestly, this movie seems like it probably was really easy to sell. Because who, who doesn't want to be in an alien film? And there's only not, well, I mean, it's two now. But like, you know, you want <laughs> everybody would like to get a crack at that world. And this, they got a, they were able to get this movie greenlit, and you know, I think um, I will be surprised if it's good. I'll enjoy it. I'm just saying that, like, the trailer definitely didn't grab me, and all elements from their suits to the space station to the life form itself seemed all like we've seen it before. Yeah, and I kind of agree with your take. It didn't really pull me in, and the main attraction for me were the names. But I have to say. I mean, it was pretty cool to see Ryan Reynolds, a.k.a. Deadpool, next to Jake Gyllenhaal, um, uh, Donnie Darko. Uh, right. So you've got you've got Deadpool next to Donnie Darko. I don't feel like they've done anything, you know, where they're both in the lead before like this. I could be wrong, but I mean, it's kind of cool to see them because they, they usually seem to do different kinds of films. Yeah. You know, so it, it's kind of an, an interesting contrast. And I guess Hiroyuki Sonata is maybe like the bridge between the two. We kind of are like in a glut right now of Mars films. There's uh, a number of films about Mars, documentaries about the History Channel and um, Nat Geo. Yeah. National Geographic just had their own documentary about Mars. Nat Geo doing a narrative. They're doing a narrative doc. Yeah, it's like mixing fiction with reality. Yep. Yeah, and so in that doc... Well, by the way, did you get a chance to see that? I did not. I still have yet to see it myself. We talked about it a bit here on the pod. In that uh, particular series, they actually have uh, Elon Musk, um, the founder of SpaceX, uh, who appears a couple of times. And Elon Musk actually kind of had this big event. I, I want to say it's about two months ago now. Did you get a chance to see that, where he's, like, talking about how he's going to get, like, a colony to Mars and all that? Did you get a chance to even, like, glimpse at that? Yeah, definitely that. I definitely watched that. So, I mean, like, as all of this kind of activity, this science fiction activity around Mars is kind of kicking up, do you think this is kind of like a signal that we're kind of, that it's more realistic and we're getting excited about it and that's why pop culture is grabbing onto it? Or is it more kind of just maybe a flash in the pan trend and maybe in a couple of years we'll be back to Westerns or something? I think that media can help inspire science, even from the old days of an old little scroll and Nostradamus's overwrought 
crowded den scribbling his quatrains. They were like, you know, somebody read that and was like, hey, yo, we could make an airplane one day. I think that like it inspires us deeply. So the Mars movies, I'm all for it and space travel. And hopefully, you know, we can ramp up our space travel uh, efforts. I mean, if we weren't here bombing each other, we could just all be, you know what I mean? Already chilling or Neptune. But unfortunately, we got a lot of stuff here on the planet that we waste a lot of time with. And, uh, you know, but hopefully we can put our focus on going to the space. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, some of the conditions they suffer, like would go away if they went to Mars. I think you don't really have time to like have an anxiety attack. If you're like on Mars, you're like too busy worried about survival and hard work. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, well, just to get back to the plot of life for a second, um, the fictional plot uh, that occurs in life, they find the life form and then it begins to take over like in the trailer. We're not spoiling anything in the trailer. You see the life form, I guess, attach itself to one of the astronauts and things begin to unravel. And I kind of feel like that's not unrealistic with regard to manned missions, you know, to different planets. I mean, if we do find life, there's, there are no guarantees that it will be benign, that it'll be like, you know, oh, we just, you know, similar to like us going to the Arctic and, you know, just kind of scooping up some bacteria. When we leave our planet, all bets are off. I don't know. So, I mean, anything else that you picked out of that? Well, it looks, it sounds like it's the thing in space. Ah, John Carpenter's. Like, I don't, at least from the trailer and what they're hinting at, I don't really see where they can go with it. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, especially something that like morphs into you is going to be like, I don't know. It just doesn't seem that um, new. And on top of it, it seems to be making the same mistake that everybody hated in Prometheus, where it's like someone who works with exobiology and you find this creature. And the first thing you want to do is go coochie, coochie, coo. <laughs> To her goddamn fucking alien fucking slug that makes no fucking sense. Like anybody who's in that field, they would be like, yo, I'm going to watch the fuck out of this before I even, you know what I mean? Wave right. my hand there. It doesn't even make sense. Why would you touch it? It could die. It could whatever, spit acid, whatever. You don't know what the hell is in there. Radiation. Right. I just feel like that's a classic mistake and i understand like if like the dumb space janitor did it but like the exobiologist they're not yeah the they're space not space janitor <laughs> okay gotcha gotcha you know everywhere in there oh what the heck is this um somebody <laughs> right. left some boogers there it looked like boogers actually right 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 so i don't i so i'm not i don't i'm not that hot on it i think once you trap yourself with an alien like that it kind of limits you a little bit. Mm. I think that was what was so dope about Alien, not to mention, you know, the the the, the different stages of it was designed by H.R. Geiger, a master artist who, you know, created a whole vein of work that was both sexual and disgusting and scary as fuck. Yeah. Whereas like this, you know, it looks like some boogers, it gets into you, and then it's like, oh, look, oh no, why why is Jay Glidenhall doing that? I don't understand. <laughs> Wait, what'd you call him? Gliden Hall? Gliden, Gliden Hall. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. No, no. Good points. Good points. Um, yeah. So unless they, and they didn't, I mean, I understand if you don't want to reveal the twist in there, mm -hmm. but you know. No, I well, if it was in the trailer, talk about it. What, what do you, what do you? No, no. I'm saying that I feel like the story trajectory, then one person survives. 
Two people survive. They get into the space capsule as the thing disintegrates. In fact, didn't they have a scene in the trailer that's very much like um, gravity? Like, like, oh, look, we rendered 3D space thing coming. Up. Well, actually, that still will look cool. I have to admit, there's still some, there's still some energy in showing a, a, a showing a space station come apart at the seams. Since you brought up gravity and we're just talking about Mars films in general, that film seemed to, like, in the same way that um, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey seemed to raise the bar for depictions of space in terms of special effects, I think that was 1969, it seemed like Gravity did the same thing, you know, for our modern space films. But I'm not really, I don't feel like I'm seeing that replicated. I don't feel like I'm seeing the same effort given toward these other films. I mean, agree, disagree? Well, I mean, from what everyone's saying, Doctor Strange might have that feel. And like I said, I think, um, you know, well, first of all, most directors are not Kubrick, right? Like he comes from a different time period and was exploring his art in a very different way than other people do. Um, You know, I I might be reading too much and deifying him, but, you know, he's not chilling in a pencil thing. He wasn't chilling in a pencil thin um, Italian suit with uh with Italian shoes sitting on a sunset strip saying, you know, going, Oh, you want guys want me to do a uh <laughs> science fiction film? Okay, cool. Right, right. Okay. I hired me the best uh art director in town. And I think that like, you know, Kubrick was like a very um like he was into like a massive amount of personal research hmm. that even took a physical toll on him to hmm. figure out what he was gonna do for his film, rightly or wrongly. And that's just a different kind of um, artisan than like some of the process we go through. I'm not saying, and I'm not trying to disparage any directors. It's just that the process is different. And there are some directors that do all that work. And there's some that don't. And there's some that are just fucking genius. Like Luke Besson, that guy is like a machine. How he turns out full scripts every just whatever. I mean, the guy's just a machine of storytelling. Yeah, he never stops working. So Life is coming out uh, again. That's another 2017 film uh, in May, at least in the U.S. And we will keep an eye out for that. So we're going to move on and dive into the main topic of this episode, which is living the digital life. I guess uh, the next phase of how we live our digital lives in a bit safer fashion. Um, But first I want to kind of dive into or tell the listeners a little bit more about you. So can you just like maybe in a very encapsulated form kind of detail how you transition from full-time hacking into the area of film, filmmaking, you know, directing that kind of thing. All right. So I used to break into computers. There's, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I just straight up, penetrated deep into computers and looked at all the data. Um, I was uh, unmerciful and attacked everything globally. At a certain point, um, that actually led to a wee bit of incarceration. Um, And then after I got out, um, um, probably I did hack for a very long time after that um, and transitioned a bit into computer security, which is now a billion-dollar industry. I left kind of before it blew up, but I did was cashing some huge checks doing computer security, traveling the world. I think that like eventually what happened is I start to get bored because in a lot of ways, you know, imagine like you do all this work and you get paid a lot of money to secure this network. And then like a month later, they throw all the computers that you just spent hours and months on securing and they throw them all out and replace them with new computers. Now, what do you do? I had an existential crisis and I always wanted to tell stories and had dabbled with it before. And I was like, you know what? Let me transition to that. And to some extent, 
um, hacker culture is um, on the rise. It's now an indelible part of our culture. It's um, in the same way that hip hop first blew up and skateboarding. Um, at first, they were like these small little things somebody was doing in a basement somewhere or in the case of skateboarding in a pool in Santa Monica. And they became multi-billion dollar global industries that spawn not just not in the case of hip hop, not just music, but clothing, uh, attitude, language, um, video games. I mean, just a myriad of things is embedded in our culture indelibly now and skateboarding as well. You see it, it's like the ultimate in Rebel Cool. You know, if a guy or a girl or anybody walks in with a skateboard, you know, that dude is fucking cool and he could do cool shit. He's in control of his body. I think that, like, um, that hacking has now reached that status. So, in telling stories, every story going forward, I mean, in fact, I mean, in a lot of ways now, it does, I mean, even if, you know, it's almost kind of strange that, like, even in a sitcom, they don't have uh, hacker characters yet. Because honestly, in every movie, I mean, it's been going back a couple of years now, you know, oh, we need a hacker. Ah, I go in the room and there's a guy and he's a hacker. I think that it, but hacking has become more than that. It's, you know, your wife, it's your son, it's um, your husband, like everybody is hacking. And in a lot of ways in our increasingly, um, our, the increase in how the digital domain has increased around us, everything from IOT to our computers, to our phones, to the internet, to what comes next and what's under it means that we all have to become technologically savvy to participate in society at a certain level. That's a great breakdown. And so take me a little bit further into your Hollywood, you know, filmmaking side. Like how did that transition occur? So I started off um, doing um, music videos. Um, I still do music videos. It's a great form. And music, it usually is geared toward the youth. Uh, I started doing bigger and vis- bigger music videos, and then um, I jumped on as a visual director for um, the Miley Cyrus tour, and um, I did some documentaries for television. Like, I did a documentary about Dead Prez, which is a radical hip-hop group. That was on Stars, right? Yeah, that was on Stars. Yeah, yeah. And then um, um, I worked on a, a, a show where we used, like, technology and hacking to prank people for MTV that should come out very shortly, actually. Can you um, say the name or is that still under wraps? Oh, it's called Bugged Out. It's going to hit MTV International first before it goes to regular MTV uh, here in the States. And right now I'm working on a set of uh, sci-fi shorts. So since I'm enamored with science fiction, as you hopefully can tell from our discussion and dissecting science fiction films. Before we get too deep into kind of the general conversation, give me your sense of the state of science fiction in Hollywood, because kind of in line with what you just said, I do feel like hacker culture and computer culture has gone mainstream has and has officially become cool, not this outlier thing. But in lockstep, we also seem to have this rise of science fiction. And, you know, we just talked about like Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds and I mean, it just seems like if you're now if you're a mainstream actor, you have to do some sort of I mean, what you have the arrival that just came out. Um, You have films like Passengers starring Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt. It's kind of mainstream in Hollywood to not just do science fiction, but to go deep, like do like really either dark science fiction or high concept science fiction. So I know you spend a lot of time in Hollywood. I mean, what um, like is is my read accurate? Your read is accurate. And also, by the way, um. A new uh, 
Pitch Black, which is one of my favorite science fiction films of all time. Same, same. They're doing a new installment of it, which hopefully I would like to be excited about um, and bring it back on track. The Furian. That's Vin Diesel as the Furian, the renegade Furian. That first one is one of the most incredible surprise films. Just shocked me. And all the details were right. Yeah. It's incredible. Back to Hollywood. <laughs> so, yeah, so, so science fiction in Hollywood. Yes, yeah, so and now a trend, check this out. Here's my theory about it. Now, when Twilight Zone came out and during the period that period, there was such an explosion in science and technology at that time that the future seemed bright and every writer was inspired. Now hold on, you're talking about the original by Rod Serling back in the sixties, correct? The master himself, the okay. master. Yes. So a lot of those stories, as well as the movies from that time period, like, you know, um, Forbidden Planet, which is an incredible, to me, an incredible film, right? Those films and the reason it was so powerful, because like we were going to the moon, we were inspired to go to the moon and it actually went to the moon in those in that time period. Everything seemed possible. Sputnik, you know, Voyager was going past planets. You know, um, people were making all types of tech technological leaps there was the bomb atomic bomb they had harnessed that power to atom then came the 80s and 90s and you know we had jazzercise we had jazzercise and sweating to the oldies so when they remade twilight zone they didn't know what the fuck to write because science was not popping in the 80s and 90s nobody found out shit the most we had was like like yeah pcs were created but like it wasn't really the pc wasn't that different than Robbie the Robot. Like, in fact, <laughs> Robbie the Robot with his vacuum tubes was more advanced than, a, you know, a Windows 3.1, you know? Right. I think that, like, we just fell asleep in that period. Now here we are now with massive, massive new technologies, new medicine, traveling into space. Mars is now potentially a reality water on different moons that we could go to probably huge oceans we there's so much possibility we're unraveling string theory and understanding time and space itself so now writers can dream again about what is possible and that is spurring on the science fiction that's why after all those failed twilight zone movies and um re and trying to do series like it finally a worthy success to has come black mirror because yeah. now we understand the ramifications of the technology in our society. Like the first time we had computers, yeah, that was cool. Send an email, but come on the power of social networks connecting all of us at the blink of an eye, our thoughts made manifest as it like sort of like one idea, one meme can travel across the planet in seconds and you can, you can track it and you know, whether you're a, a, a three letter agency or just a, or, you know, a writer at a place, you can track trends that are literally global in front of your face that somebody would have had to go to the library and pour over tomes of like yellowing newspapers that they collected on those like wooden scrolls. Now, you know, you just turn on your computer and it's all at your fingertips. Everything's going faster. Everybody codes faster and makes better stuff as they share code. It's incredible. So sci-fi is going to go far. Um, it, it is in a renaissance phase because we have more uh, uh, inspiration in our society. To present a counterpoint to that, what about the notion that there are so many things in real life now, whether it's science, biology, space travel, you know, technology here on, here on Earth. There are so many things, amazing things happening that it's almost it seems like it's becoming harder to imagine the impossible. I mean, do you think that's 
kind of like a valid. I do think that's a valid thing, but that's why Black Mirror is so good and so much like Twilight Zone because it the science fiction is 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 hard, right? Because you can think of fancy, crazy shit. You know what I mean? Like everybody thinks they, you know, have some zany ideas and probably they are really good. But science fiction really turns on connecting what it means to be human and that challenge and interacting with the technology. You know, what happens to your humanity? What happens to the existential crisis that affects all of us about why we are here, what it means? And if science fiction opens even a moment into that idea of what it means to be human, I think that it that's where the magic comes in. And it's very that's the thing like Jupiter ascending, like it didn't really mean anything. It was just like, oh look cool, we throw some stuff in, a little bit of thing. There are a lot of cool elements in there, but ultimately the story itself did not challenge um the nature of humanity in a way like when you read a good book from, you know, whether it's, you know, from Hemingway or Dostoevsky, like challenging the very fabric of your humanity or the philo- or philosophers who spend all their life thinking and then coalescing everything into one book. <laughs> I mean, it's really kind of ill that they spend so much time and they write one that will blow your mind and advance society too. And you don't notice it, but all the thinkers read it and it affects them and inspires them. And I think that like, that is the touch point that you have to hit. And it's a sweet spot. And I think that, of course, there's room for like horror films and science fiction without that. I mean, in some ways, life seems to be in that direction. See, the one thing that was dope about Alien, where it went, it started to go. It had all these hints that there was, a, you know, something even beyond the aliens. What was it? The, the pilot, the um, navigator and stuff. It like hinted that there was another world that that humanity hadn't even touched, even though it had encountered the xenomorph. Like, it made you dream big. That's one of my favorite parts of the Alien franchise is what's going on with the Navigators. I mean, I think we're supposed to find out at least a few more hints in the next one coming up. You know, but yeah, I agree that the idea of dreaming big by kind of leaving little breadcrumbs. I mean, I have to say, this is a brilliant wrap up or or summation of like the importance of science fiction, good science fiction. Uh, and I particularly, you know, like how you brought up the um, Rod Serling example, because that was the thing about Rod Serling. If anyone out there listening ever wants to dive into Rod Serling and figure out who he is and what he was about, he was all about story. It was never, you know, his stories didn't hinge upon technology or, okay, this new software came out and this makes this possible. So we have to talk about it and try to figure out a clever way around it. No, it was always a human struggle, a human turn. As, as uh, John just mentioned, there was some element of kind of like our big questions here on earth as they relate to science and technology. So you see that Renaissance going on in Hollywood right now. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like I said, Black Mirror is just incredible. And I think that science fiction has so much of a range. It could be dark. It could be funny. It could be brooding like Moon. Um, It could answer existential questions, which Moon did because Moon was very, it reminded me a lot of um, Christopher Nolan's, um, what was the magic movie, which also had a bit of science in it, in a way. Oh, the, was that the Prestige? I always, I always mix up the Prestige with the other one. I know, the Illusionist or something. Yeah, I I always mix those two up. I don't because the Prestige is incredible (laughs) and it goes from magic into science. Because then Tesla appears. Oh, right, right. Yeah, David Bowie as Tesla. And then he gives him the device. 
And that's funny because David Bowie is playing Tesla, right? And then I told you in some ways that the mechanics of the issue at hand in the prestige is also in Moon. Like that if you kill yourself, the re- is the replica really you? Are you getting deep, man. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, you, you, I think you just uh, blew my mind a little bit. But yeah, yeah, I hadn't really made that connection. Hmm. The yeah. prestige was fucking incredible. He had to beat the other guy. Do you remember the ending? Am I spoiling it by saying it? I think maybe we should leave the spoilers alone okay. just to preserve it for anyone who hasn't okay. seen it. But, you know, oh. with, by you bringing up the intersection of science and magic, that makes me think of um, you just mentioned a few minutes ago, Doctor Strange. Um, right. So I, I know I think you said you haven't seen it, right? I haven't. I'm looking okay. forward to it. Yeah. So the interesting thing about Doctor Strange is they kind of do the same thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where they kind of what they did with Thor and Asgard. They basically take magic and they tell you that this is really just a different kind of science. And I think that's what they did with Doctor Strange. They kind of like say, oh, they tell him, you know, OK, yeah, you're used to medicine, but there's a different kind of science. And it actually works. I, I kind of I'm a Doctor Strange lover. Uh, loved the comic books when I was a kid. And I kind of wanted something dark, particularly because it was directed by Scott Derrickson. So I wanted something dark and kind of scary and, you know, more horror oriented. And that wasn't really what we got with Doctor Strange. But I really liked how they kind of took us into, I would say, a near science fiction direction with uh, Doctor Strange's magical powers. So that's just a little plug for Doctor Strange. Go see it. Highly recommended. So just back to our main track here. We kind of that was a mega tangent. We I think we just came out of one of the most historic presidential election cycles in the history of not America, the planet. Okay, (laughs) it was insane. And much of that insanity was driven by data leaks, Um, whether it was sending a phishing email to John Podesta and then that kind of resulting in, you know, various leaks or uh, as is alleged by some officials, governments out there kind of, uh, I guess, tapping into various servers and distributing the information and that information finding its way to WikiLeaks. I mean, it seems like we are definitely kind of like in this new era of not just leaks, but kind of transparency, uh, forced transparency. We talked about this in our last episode. We touched upon it. But, you know, now we have you like the expert, like the the master of this stuff. As you've seen all this kind of unfold and you don't really have to get into politics. I'm just really talking more about security and data. I mean, like, how is this all playing out to you? I mean, do you think we need like a reset, a reapproach to how we all just normal people, not hackers, just regular people, a reapproach to how we deal with all this, all this technology? Absolutely. I mean, I think at this point it is laid threadbare that like hacking affected this election. I think that um, that's the simplistic way. It's a little more complex than that. But like just in general, the fact is that technology and specifically the idea of gaining access to data in a way that a feat that a lot of people can do around the world swayed the most powerful nation in the world, swayed its election in another direction um, and destroyed people's lives. So what do you mean by destroy uh, people's lives? Can you I mean that the revelation of personal data and emails can destroy people's lives like their personal details like um just even the smallest details like yeah it can cause huge problems and it could be you know everything from just anxiety for those who are paranoid to like little details that can eventually lead to a potential divorce or 
um, loss of business contacts, some of which could be potentially keeping you afloat. I think that like in a lot of ways, the, the email links of Podesta, I mean, so many embarrassments that are, you know, I think he's going to be okay, but I mean, some of the other people who were mentioned in there may find themselves, you know, researched and abused in some way, either, you know, from blackmail or from being exploited. It's interesting that the fallout from it will be on smaller players mentioned in the emails, not necessarily the bigger players. They don't like it, but they'll, they'll be okay. They got millions and millions of dollars in the bank, but like some other people, maybe not so lucky. I think that like that at this point, um, and I think I mentioned this earlier, that means that it behooves the citizens of a techno state to have to raise the bar of their ability to understand the role of technology in their lives how one piece of data that they create, whether that data is a photo or just a simple one line message, it could turn into a prosecution. It could turn into blackmail. It travels all around the world. It could be profited from from multiple angles, advertisers, corporations, storing the data, reselling it to other people. There are so the life, the life cycle of a small piece of data that you create can like travel through all these networks and have all these different profound effects on different people. Someone somewhere bought a mansion, ticked off on the $10 they got from selling your one line data to Amazon or something for marketing purposes. You know, another person, you know, got a promotion because they filtered out your message. And it, I don't know, maybe it had some cryptic threat that the FBI will be investigating on and now they got a promotion because it led to arrest. Maybe not you, but somebody else. Just in terms of the mainstream approach to data security and privacy, if, you know, if someone hears something, someone like you talking and they say, oh, but what about Snapchat? Our messages disappear. Well, Snapchat, it has been revealed a long time ago that, you know, they keep the data and it makes sense for them to keep the data for a lot of reasons. Um, One, even if they delete it later, certainly they might need it for law enforcement um, for various reasons. Yeah, and we and we found out that uh, Yahoo uh, apparently or allegedly installed some sort of uh, catch-all device for an intelligence agency. Did you did you read that story? Acutely aware, and I didn't need to read the story to know it. I think that, and I'm not saying I'd like to brag, but let me expound upon those one or two things that I know. I think that like what's interesting is that there's a lot of companies out there that um, a lot of people don't realize that um, since the like 60s, the the um, intelligence agencies quite often invest in these companies. They had money in AT&T before we had the internet. They had money in AT&T and AT&T, AT&T delivered the calls internationally and they had access to their lines you know, for years, because it was no, they didn't need a warrant, because it just wasn't, it's just accepted. It wasn't like a privacy issue. Nobody really thought about it. You know, later that changed a little bit. But like, effectively, they have a very sweetheart, cozy relationship. And, you know, I'm not like saying that's uh, bad or good. What I'm saying is that if you follow the money, a lot of companies that rise up that handle data, and the intelligence agencies know, like with the rise of Google, that like if a new layer of society develops in the digital domain, they want to invest in that company and be there. Um, you know, I think people were noting that like uh, the company, the head of the company that did the Pokemon development, the Pokemon 
game. Like he came from an intelligence agency. Well, I mean, you've heard the stories about um, Facebook, right? Uh With that relationship. Yeah. Yeah, So this is this is kind of a familiar story. So you're saying it's nothing new that these intelligence agencies have kind of quiet and cozy relationships with some of the, I guess, platforms. Yeah, I mean, it, it behooves them to jump right in right away. I mean, to, to be able to to find out what's going on. Automatically, you just almost have to assume that everywhere you, every everything you use, potentially, like for instance, even like uh, using like Amazon Echo or something like that. Or... I was just about to get to that. So, okay, so you mentioned earlier, you tossed off IoT, which for some out there who don't know, that's the acronym, uh, stands for Internet of Things. And we could be talking about anything from the Amazon Echo, which is a speaker device that um, not only plays your music, but allows you to speak to it in much the same way that you would speak to Siri. And you can order items from from Amazon using your account. Uh, you can ask it the weather. You can get directions. You can buy various items that aren't necessarily on the website. I think you can buy movie tickets. And, and, you know, so there are a bunch of different devices that are so-called Internet of Things devices that are rising, whether it's uh, appliances in the kitchen, just various items. And in many cases, these items are set to listen for that kind of prompt word to you know initialize its service function to, you know, so it can respond to you. I'm really curious about this because I know you're a smart home lover. And so I'm just wondering, like, you know, where we are installing all these devices in our homes with these microphones that are kind of like always on. I mean, are we essentially getting into this? I don't want to say Orwellian, but there is kind of like this device in Orwell's 1984 that kind of like watches you. It's like a, a an appliance-like device that watches you and keeps tabs. I mean, are we already there and just kind of doing it willingly or do you see it? Am, am I overstating? I think that it is as often the case with these things is that a lot of times you'll, we're like frogs in the pot and we don't really know that it's dangerous until the last, till it's too late and it, it starts boiling. And you can't get out. It's too late. If you jumped earlier, you'd have been fine. But you can't really tell why you're in it because it just feels like it's oh, it's just getting a little warmer. Ah, just a little warmer. Boom. It gets too hot and you get scalded and can't jump out. Yeah, it's gradual. So you don't really see it. So Vice did this um, mini documentary earlier this year. I think it was June or July. And we talked about this in the last episode where Edward Snowden showed how he could basically manipulate a smartphone to allow it to not just track you, but also turn on your front-facing camera to look at you without letting you know that that camera was initialized. And I think about the same thing with the Internet of Things uh, anecdote, because he removed from the smartphone that he hacked three microphones that, again, like, you know, even with our smartphones, you know, some of these phones are set to, I think there's a setting in iOS that you can leave on that says, uh, leave Hey Siri on. And if you leave Hey and this actually happened to me the other day, I just um, I don't usually use that function, but I decided, oh, let me give it a try for a couple of days. And I left Hey Siri on and I have not said the word Siri or Hey Siri unless I'm testing. And I happen to look over at my phone and my phone, Siri, you know, that little waveform, the Siri waveform was recording my voice. And I, and I, you know, I thought, okay, this is weird. I have to turn off Hey Siri because I don't want it to accidentally initialize. It seems like a very short jump from that to where the phone could be easily listening to you without showing the waveform. That is correct. I think that um, everybody has experienced the thing where um, they are talking about something 
and then they go on the internet and you're like, yo, why is there an ad for the thing I was just talking about? No, what the hell are you talking about? No, please, please Like you're talking in the, in the room and then you go online and yo, the, the thing you were talking about in the room, this ad served for it. No, wait, have you, you have a documented case where you've seen this? I have seen it multiple times, yes. <laughs> it's definitely a thing. Um, wait, the person didn't visit the, a website, they just talked about it around their computer or around their smartphone, and suddenly they're getting ads served about that topic. That's right. If this was coming from anyone else, I would call you a little uh, paranoid, but I know who you are, so now I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little scared. And I'm not paranoid. <laughs> I think that like there is a window where some of these apps are allowed to, to get some voice thing. What's to stop them from processing it? So wait, so do you, I mean, as a technologist, as a coder, as a you know, hacker, I mean, how does that work? Well, first of all, if I worked for any company that was developing, let's say like a, a Amazon Echo thing, you know, at first blush, there's, you're thinking about all the different ways you can make the product better. But with that, you know, comes things like, you know, here you have this database of words that you want to process and have, you know, neural nets running over it to determine, you know, the best way that most people say a certain thing. But in that is also a huge amount of data that you can use for marketing. You know, if like, you know, you have, let's say, a thousand people using a device like Amazon Echo. If 600 of them are use, are saying, you know, I don't know, Madonna, play a Madonna song, you know that, yo, maybe you need to like, you know, strike a deal with Madonna to promote Amazon Echo. Or you need to put Madonna on the front page for a wide swath of the users to buy her music and movies. I think that like... Of course, you're going to process and cross process that voice data with everybody else's data. Now, I'm assuming you don't have conclusive proof of that. So you're saying you think that's what's happening or, you know, that's happening for sure. And you, you with the with the voice ad, I don't have conclusive proof. What what there is, is that there are some um, rogue rogue things that wind up getting installed that listen that listen in. But um, I do not have conclusive proof. I only have anecdotal anecdotal proof of it happening um i actually keep meaning to look into it um but what i did was i kind of just uh uninstalled the apps that i thought were the offending ones that had microphone usage that because a lot of apps you install and like you don't think of using the microphone with it a good example would be facebook i mean obviously if you think about it there are like some voice tools in it but like you don't think about it and you just click the thing and give it permissions to access your microphone. I mean, this is disturbing because it's like right now, pretty much you have you have Google with OK Google, you have Siri with Apple, you have Amazon Echo, which is their digital assistant Alexa. You have a number of huge companies promoting these digital voice assistants. I mean, do you think there's even a way for us to kind of? I mean, I, for a lot of us who are into science fiction. We think back to Star Trek and the Enterprise and the captain being able to just talk to his computer. You know, computer, you know, bring the records from 19, da, 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 da. I mean, is that, does that mean that's not possible without us just giving up a certain amount of privacy? We have to give up some of our privacy for some of these features to take place. I mean, that's why I'm not really paranoid to be able to participate in things. I mean, you know, GPS is really handy, but it's a two-way, you know, it's a two-way ball if you're pinging systems if you're pinging cell phone towers then you can be triangulated your position can be given away very rapidly but what are you going to do are you going to just keep your phone off and just turn it on and then run away from that position 
No, you gotta live life. You know, I mean, even if you are doing something illegal, I mean, it really is tough. I mean, the, you know, there's times they pinpointed people's target in in Afghanistan or or actually more specifically um, Syria because they would do things like and the Ukraine actually um, from like posting on Instagram like photos and stuff like the soldiers. They'd be like, "Yo, what up?" And it was like the <laughs> GPS was in the thing, and you know, if the OSN team is looking at it they're like yep bomb that position right th- right there yeah even with twitter i noticed that for a very long time people didn't seem to know that they could control um what's displayed with regard to their location i mean i'm sure twitter keeps that data but in terms of it being publicly displayed it seems like only the last couple of years that most people realize that they could turn that off even even though i might take issue with some of these things. If I was working with the data, of course, I'd be experimenting with it, cross-referencing it, doing different things. Did you see where Adobe released as a piece of software where it can just listen to a few clips of you and then the computer can generate your voice saying anything? I have no idea what you're talking about. Please. Adobe uh, released a piece of code using uh, it's, um, it's a piece of software. So basically, you you give it a few pieces of that person talking. It could be like, let's say, I don't know, uh, what's that guy? Uh, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Oh, no, that's Edward. Oh, James Cagney. Yeah, yeah see? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You know, and then it can talk in that person's voice. It just needs a few of the phonics, and it'll it'll pick it up, and then you can have them say anything you want. And you're saying this is an experiment that they conducted without notifying? No, no, it's a piece of software that they're going to release. And the first thought is from the hacker world is like, yo, in terms of social engineering, that's just incredible. Because oh. now you can fucking get a few pieces of a person's voice, whether it's from a, a IoT device or whatever, or um, just, you know what I mean, any clip or, or, or from a social network, anywhere you could find that person's voice, a voicemail. I mean, shit, if you could just trick them to call your voicemail. And get a few notes, octaves of their voice, throw it in his software, you'll have them talking. And, you know, hi, hello, Chase Manhattan Bank. Yes, it is, Derek. Yes, it is. Wow. Wow. That's, I did not, okay. I gotta, I gotta look into that. That's, that's pretty scary. But it seems like you've made peace with this from your vantage point in terms of Internet of Things devices. You're taking, I guess, digital hygienic measures. But I mean, when is when is enough or when is too much too much? Let me just say, as someone who has worked on both sides of the fence, both legal and illegal and operate somewhere in between, I've seen the pipes that contain the flows of data, the torrent of information of everybody's most personal and private messages and images and voice and sounds. The truth is. In terms of forensics and hunting people down, there's actually too much data. It makes it hard. It's like finding a needle in a haystack. It's actually so much data generated by human beings. It makes so many false leads that you wind up with a lot of people spending a lot of time on false leads between two people who are just pretending to be, you know, uh, members of some radical group. They're like, let's just pretend and email a little bit. And they're not thinking about, like, trying to trigger an investigation. Just joking around, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm not even going to make fun of anybody in particular. I'm just saying, no matter what, you know, let's pretend to be gangsters or whatever. And it triggers an investigation. 
And, um, you know, taxpayer dollars and time, people at desks, you know, looking everything up. Oh, it's nothing there. They're just playing around. But the fact is that's going on on a constant basis. So in a lot of ways, one of one of the techniques that some people use is just hiding in the streams. Right. If you know how to talk and code and do certain things that are not are the opposite of attracting attention. A lot of times you don't have to worry about security. Some people get super paranoid and everything like that. But if you just take the right precautions, in a lot of ways, they can't find you in the data streams. It's just too much. In a lot of ways, they actually, the, it took a while, Al-Qaeda used to use um, encryption, and then they figured out that the government American government was picking up on a data stream. They're like, yo, why is this encrypted thing coming out of this thing? Why is the header encrypted? Oh, let's uh, check that one out. And then they figured out to just start hiding it in regular things. Yo, hey, mom, what's for dinner? You know, hey, guys, we're sending some palm, some, I don't know, some nuts, some, <laughs> some, I don't know, some, some almonds or something to London for you. Like, you know what I mean? And, you know, right, right. what the fuck does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You see that in the stream of a million different messages. You don't think anything. You see something encrypted. You're like, somebody got something to hide. Let's figure that out. Well, Senator, this is counterintuitive because often when security experts speak in public, the first thing they talk about is using uh, encrypted email, you know, in- encrypted messaging services. So you're saying using those services will actually bring more attention. Yes. When I'm on the panel, a lot of times I'm in direct opposition, except if there's somebody on there from the intelligence agencies, then they go, this is the only guy that knows what he's talking about. The other people, and by the way, when you say experts, you know, and I know that they are self-declared experts. They don't know shit. There is a wide swath. Let me take this moment to just say this. There is a huge multi-billion dollar industry in computer security. There's no way everybody can be good. It's just not possible. It's not possible. So most of the pundits that you see they don't know jack shit and they actually say to do the wrong thing. Now, that being said, some of the stuff I'm talking about is funny. That is like, you know, that's probably it's probably like it's totally legal. But in a weird way, it's probably someone in a gray area who would think about doing something like that. Um, but a lot of those people, they just don't have any experience. They claim to be. I'm not saying that you can't be a good computer security person without ever breaking into a computer. But the chances is probably low. There's a lot of people, they've worked in the industry. They know everybody. They're the face of different things. They never broke into a computer. So it's kind of like, it's kind of weird. It's like somebody talking about flying that never flew a plane. Like I just, like in trying to explain to you how to, how to fly. They're just making it up. They're just going along. Oh, you touch the yoke. Yeah. And they remember they seen it on a TV show somewhere. You push the yoke and make it go up. If I, if I had a dollar for every panel I've been on, with clowns that either are embarrassed from explaining how it re- how the world really works and computer hacking, or in, if I'm feeling really rambunctious, actually hack them there. Um, it's not that I'm not saying encryption is not good. That's not what I'm saying. Is that a hacker worth his weight? The guy you are should be afraid of. Yo, honestly, he's gonna go right around that encryption. He's gonna see the message after you decrypt it. So then, what's the point? It's the same with Signal, right? I love Signal, but they tell you. Like, listen, if your phone is not locked, if somebody gains access to your phone remotely, they're going to see the message encrypted. It's only encrypted so that the network sniffs can't get to it. And just to be clear for those listening, Signal, um, to my understanding, is a encrypted messaging app, correct? Yes, it allows you to make encrypted um, voice and data 
connections with your friends over the, over the existing networks that we know all have partnerships with the various intelligence agencies around the world. We, we're looking at all of this as kind of now technology is mainstream. You're saying that, you know, there are certain things you can guard against, but, you know, if you're going to use Internet of Things, the Internet of Things, you have to kind of make peace with a certain amount of transparency. Um, but how does that play with things like I, I don't think um, I think I asked you, you didn't see uh, off air. Uh, off mic. I don't think you've seen the new Snowden movie by Oliver Stone. I have not. A good friend of mine consulted on that movie, and I have to embarrassingly say that I have not seen it yet. Okay, so there's a very uh, funny scene where uh, Edward Snowden is in bed with his girlfriend, and they're in the throes of uh, you know making love, and he looks over at his laptop, which is across the room. And he realizes that the webcam embedded in the laptop's uh, screen is not covered. And like she's in the throes of like, you know, ecstasy and his face just twists in this like, you know, concern face, you know, the, the Edward Snowden concern face. So, I mean, where's the, the middle ground between covering up our webcams? And I don't know if you saw the Mark Zuckerberg photo where it showed uh, his desk. He not only had the webcam covered up, but it appeared that he had the microphone on the side of the laptop covered as well. That's right. I mean, come on. If you strike his laptop, that's pay dinner. So, I mean, where's the middle ground between all this where we're, you know, doing things like that to kind of protect our privacy, but also, you know, have the ability to use, you know, Internet of Things devices and not think too much about this stuff? Most citizens, they don't have to worry about it day to day. Most people are, you know, watching Netflix and making ramen noodles and ordering uh, Indian and Thai and, uh, I don't know, playing with their Roombas, checking very banal websites. I think that, like, most people don't really have to worry about it That because there are so many people on the planet and so many devices. Now, that being said, the interesting thing about IoT is that um, even if they don't go after your data, recently there was a DDoS attack that originated, a huge swath of it originated on Internet of Things style devices. Oh, the DDoS attack. Yeah, DDoS attack. and denial of service. And it was powerful because it was a little bit harder to shut down because it was on these devices that weren't the same as like just like, let's say, a server that's already on the Internet and they can sort of reroute traffic until they can take that server offline, but if it's all these little tiny devices flooding packets, how are you going to shut them down? Like it's in your house. It's like, let's say it's coming off your, um, I don't know, your um, little exercise step tracking device, and you don't even know that it's compromised and busy banging packets. Well, but just to get back on track, I mean, so we talked about that DDoS attack uh, a couple of weeks ago. Back to my question of, you know, between people kind of slowly learning. I remember, you know, I've said this before on this podcast, you know, when I used to cover up my webcam, I would get weird looks. Oh, you're paranoid. And now they sell these things on Amazon and everyone buys them and people put tape, you know, people who know nothing about hacking put tape over their webcams. It's becoming common. And I'm just wondering, where's the kind of middle ground between that and I guess letting go? of our concerns with these IOT devices that are watching us in some cases, you know, cameras, webcams, you know, you know, listening devices. I mean, is the, you know, where do you see a middle ground? I mean, I'm just trying to get some answer of how do we live moving forward from someone who has seen kind of like the discrete data streams? I think that like you have to, you have to, like I said, most people have 
don't have anything to worry about. They don't have any data that anybody wants. Um, they may not have, unfortunately, or fortunately, actually, in some cases, you know, an interesting amount of money to a thief. I think, um, I mean, I don't think they wind up being targets of opportunity. Um, I was only mentioning the DDoS in a sense that, like, that makes everybody a target of opportunity in a way um, to use their IoT devices, all the devices in their house um, and, and on their person and in their car to, to stage attacks on other places. And to go farther, there was just a DDoS attack in Finland on a heating system and it left people without heat. You know, obviously somebody could die from that. I'm not trying to like be an alarmist. It was just, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, 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 I deeply care about people and want them to be safe, but there's also a whimsical hacker side of me. That's like, that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, I got to analyze it for my own um, usage that like, yo, they were able to deliver this attack. And yeah, it's not the most start sterling hack, but if you think about it, it's actually, a very powerful attack because it affected the real world and nobody was thinking about a heating system being secure. Um, and there are other systems that can be disrupted with DDoS. So now you don't even have to break into the system. You break into other people's system and then direct the packet flood toward them. And what I'm saying is that with the proliferation of IOT devices going up and it's just going to go up. I mean, I probably am ready to press buy now on like 10 different devices I can think of. You know, little tiny robots, little things that, you know, do little stupid things. I still kind of want a refrigerator with the Internet of Things in it. Um, so even in your position, which is, I would say, one where, I don't know, you have a history of hacking. You've had some consequences from that in the past. I mean, you've apparently moved on, but you most likely talk about some sensitive things now and then. Even you're not that worried about Internet of Things devices possibly you know listening in or getting a peek at what you're doing technically you could get hit by a car just coming out your house just somebody jumps the curve so in some ways based on my path through this world i have to say that like you can't be but so worried and like i said in a lot of ways just have to hide through the stream now that being said i think that there are some key things that actually they should be teaching like kids in school about the nature of like fishing which seems to be a very powerful attack I myself don't really fish because I fall under like sort of like what you would call like real computer hacking where you actually break into the system so you don't need to fish. Like me, I'm not a DDoSer. I'm going to go in. I'm going to try to stay quiet and read your data for as long as possible. That's my style. The Mars Magazine podcast is not responsible for any of the claims or assertions. <laughs> just I'm sorry. I just had to put it's that in. It's all good. Or? It's all good. I live dangerously um, and I am a known person of interest. So anyway, um, right. that being said, I'm not like a purist per se, but what I'm saying is that DDoS is actually a more powerful attack and only become more powerful as, like I said, that heating system went offline. Yeah, sure, you could break into that system and do the same thing. But yo, now you never even have to think about breaking in. You could do a DDoS from outside. And plus, we rely on a huge amount of financial instruments on the net and that is only going to increase in the next yeah forever actually so that would make ddos even more powerful because you actually could take out the economic systems or corporate or corporate you know or a company that relies on transactions and bring them to their knees and that could have real world effects stock prices 
people losing their job. Um, a lot of shit can happen from it. It seems like it's this open-ended situation where, you know, a lot of the security experts think that this is just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and there is no real solution until maybe, I don't know, the companies install, you know, or, you know, kind of like do some sort of backdoor solution. I mean, are you thinking about that in terms of solutions? Because the landscape changes so much, there's not one thing that fits every scenario. So that is the problem. It's evolving so fast. IoT makes it even more difficult. And those devices aren't necessarily standard with each other. So if somebody cracks it, like it could be forever before anybody knows what happened to it versus like a generic system like Windows, like there's multiple researchers working on the exact same copy of Windows. So if some person finds it, then it can like propagate. But with the IoT, some of those things are so unique that like it's going to make it much harder. And if somebody cracks it, a longer throw to get to it. I think that like there's no solution that fits all. I think right now I've been thinking about the idea of education which is missing in a lot of ways, just simple things. Like, you know, I always lament that, like, my mother would tell me, like, and I think in the 50s or whatever, they would have, like, home ec classes in the 50s and 60s where they would teach you how to balance a checkbook and simple shit. And, man, they didn't teach us that. Um, I understand, you know, we got quick quicken and all that stuff, so we think we don't need it. Why isn't there, like, computer, you know, security 101, like, just how to be a digital citizen in this time? Because digital networks... I've expanded. There's going to be a whole other layer on top of the internet with VR. Then there's the internet that's below it, like the dark web, which is still the internet. But, you know, I, it's just that there's these light, even though it's still the internet, it's just this expanded area of nodes and data and places. Now, now hold on. What was that you just said about this other layer of VR? I mean, that VR in a lot of ways is going to have its own operating nodes and its own world to operate in. And they'll have, you know, financial tools and games and connections between different people. So, you know, while other people using the web, other people be in this VR world, which is another world to tap into for hackers to get into and play around. And that should be um, really interesting. So I hadn't, but I hadn't even thought about virtual reality hacking. That's fascinating. That's like, yeah, that's a whole new, uh, I guess, platform where hacking will begin to occur. It's going to be so good. Well, you're going to like turn yourself into a a fat old lady with gray hair and a sweet little voice based on that Adobe software and uh, social engineer your way into people's lives. The possibilities (laughs) are going to be so good. So to kind of begin to wrap up, if you were not who you are, if you're just like a regular person, not a hacker, not super experienced, and you wanted to get someone some incredibly private data, let's say um, it's a relative or your partner, you know, your, your husband or wife or partner, and let's say it's something like an account number to a bank. But you, you know, you're just trying to give them, let's say, five different account numbers to five different accounts. How would you go about that? That's a good question. <laughs> well, I would just drive over to the house and then write it down on a piece of paper. No, just... so that so no, no. Is that no? Seriously, in all seriousness, would that be your very first choice if possible? Yeah, why not? If not possible, I would. My first attack, if I trust the person, the first thing I'm going to do is maybe use Signal or Wicker and send it on there directly to them. Um, encrypt it, but then it decrypts on their side and then it's not on any servers. In the case of a situation where it's not, 
You're not a fugitive from justice. You're not trying to evade authorities or whatever. It's just private information. In that case, you do recommend encrypted services. Yeah, but sometimes I would even do, I've done shit like that and just separate it, like send the account an email, right? Since it's plain text out in the open and the account can't do anything, but then send a pin number to them on the cell phone. Um, You know, I might even break it up in two parts or something. Like, I mean, it's so many different half steps you could do. The other thing that I personally love to do, which is a little cinematic, is I like, I like, um, there's a name for this that that's escaping me, but I enjoy hiding data, injecting data into photos and then setting the photo. And oh, that. yes. That's, um, there's a whole name for that art, but like, yeah, I'm into that. Actually, the, I think a lot of, um, man, I don't even want to say the word, but a lot of, uh, actors, uh, not, not Hollywood actors, a lot of, uh, International actors mm-hmm. uh, of, of of various repute are known to use. That's a favorite method of mine uh, for personal communications in public arenas where I just have to get into them and we don't have a lot of time to negotiate the stuff I'm talking about. Or maybe for some reason it's better that we don't connect via phone. I love that method. There's various methods of it. Then you can encrypt it and put it in there as well. You could put it in there just in, even in straight text like in jpegs is like these windows you can put it in now keep in mind they can find that shit real easy i have to say that i've been doing it so long that in a lot of ways i just have like a laundry list that i just switch between. it's not right. it's just been so long doing it that it's not like i have a, um it's like second nature to do it. i look at it i prioritize it and i got like a million different ways to just suggest to do it whether i have the person's phone number or not and there's definitely some things i totally you know would avoid um, one of the networks I could probably avoid altogether sending anything on is actually Facebook. <laughs> that's where everyone sends their information. I know that's the one place I don't want to send anything. And then like, whereas like email, I feel a lot more comfortable, even though it could be archived if you break it up in the right way or it's hidden in the right way in messages. Honestly, no one's going to in the torrents of billions of emails. No one's ever going to find it, honestly. It sounds like your method or your advice for the best method would be to be diverse in your approaches, to mix things up and to not kind of be lazy, I guess. That sounds like it sounds like your overriding messages. Don't yeah, matter. I would say don't be lazy and always look for new ways to send data that are secure. And I choose a mix of both, you know, sort of like encrypted, encrypted sources and sort of like breaking shit up because obviously – if you attract attention with high-level encryption, someone might crack it. I just personally don't like the flag that encrypted data gives me because I know if I'm looking on a network and I see encrypted data, I'm, I'm zero in on that like right away. But like the average citizen doesn't really know that, and obviously the fake security guys never mention it because they don't know it. They don't, they don't know anything, actually. Okay, but it's easy to say that and know that, but if someone, let's say – Let's say you're not on here, you know, on a regular basis, you know, telling people kind of how to operate. Where would they go? Like if I'm John Q non-hacker, Jane Q don't know about tech, where where do these people, where would you suggest they go? You know, if they're not going to listen to Good Morning America or whatever, ABC News or Nightline and some security expert tells them to do this or that, where would you suggest they go? Well, the Intercept is doing some interesting work. There's also like the organization, Citizens Organization for like data security there's a bunch of places not well known intercept is probably the most well known and just to be clear for people who who don't know the intercept is the online news organization that was created by 
at least some of the people who helped break the Edward Snowden story from The Guardian or published yes. in The Guardian. And they have a couple of really good stories about it. Um, and then obviously there's the EFF. I'm planning on bringing a little video series out to help in the education of like the small little things you have to do to stay secure as a digital citizen and understand the threats in an entertaining way, a short, pithy way that lets you know why it's important to do. Because that's the thing. I think that a lot of times the thing about security, and this is actually why I left doing certain types of security, because you it has to be integrated into your lifestyle. If it makes it all difficult and you got to do all these things, you're just not going to do it. It has to be these small, simple power moves that you make or these small things that you know about the nature of when an email comes into your email box, how to identify it if it's a friend or a foe. I mean, a phishing attack is very powerful. It is really hard to spot. And what I'm saying is that if there was a general education on how to do it, then somebody like John Podesta, or more importantly, the IT guy who pretends he knows, could watch this video and learn a little something or find some article on The Intercept. I don't know if The Intercept has one about phishing. They probably do, but I, I was looking at their ones about Signal. But I think that like if people were educated about it, and I know that's a hard road to go down, but honestly, yo, it goes a long way, man. It, I think just the same way in everything. And next thing you know, it's like riding a bike. You know, if you know these few little things, you know, all that shit. I'm not saying it doesn't mean you'll never get caught, but yo, it just, it just, you'll look at it. You'll be like, yo, I know that's no good. I mean, I do feel like you've given us some hope that there is a way, you know, one can conduct one's life online, uh, whether it's using the Internet of Things, you know, computers, you know, exchanging information. It does seem like there is some hope for us to, I mean, I guess. On some level, it seems like you're kind of talking about maybe security through a kind of obscurity. I do. I'm a big practitioner of that. I'm into it. Um, But I think I think the bigger the bigger thing I'm saying is that all of us, I think I'd like to say is that all of us in some ways have to become a little bit of hacker. Hacker culture exploded. We're obsessed with it. But in a lot of ways, that's because we're all coming kind of coming up to meet the mark. But what I'm saying is that or exploring that part of ourselves as an individual where we can explore our identities in technology and incorporate it into our daily lives, whether it's clothes or cooking or, you know, video games or whatever you want to do in this life, lawyering, whatever, um, um, bobsledding, the technology is going to be involved in it. And um, you're going to figure out how to integrate it in it, and it's going to get better and better. But in that, all of us also have to learn how to be a little more of the computer security hacker part. And just, you know, take take notice just the way there's gun safety, just the way there's bike safety. And, you know, even if you don't wear a helmet, you sort of like instinctively start to learn where you should ride your bike, where you'll probably fall off, where you'll probably get hit by a car. Um, I think it's the same with um, computer security. Eventually you will learn. And if you have a little guide to help you, you know, the same way a teacher teaches you how to read a book or do math or your parents do rather. Um, you know, so if your parent teaches you a little bit of computer security, you'll be fine. You won't wind up like John Podesta. <laughs> right. With that, we'll wrap up. And I want you to give me a promise that when you do launch the series of uh, security tech tips, you'll circle back and let me know so I can let the listeners. Yes, know. absolutely. Yes? I agree to do that. Awesome. Thank you, John Threat, hacker, filmmaker, and uh, sci-fi nerd. Thank you. <laughs> Again, this has been the Mars Magazine podcast. My name's Adario Strange. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, 
iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And with that, we will say we will see you in the future. <laughs>